Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting It Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 31st, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I am going to present part seven of my commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. It is subtitled, The End of the Wicked. In our last presentation, In the Hand of God, which was our commentary on the first part of Wisdom, Chapter 3, we had already begun to speak of the end of the wicked in comparison with the fate of the righteous, where we had cited certain of the Psalms of David that address the same subjects which we see being treated at length by Solomon here. But where we allude to the end of the wicked, we do not mean to state that men of the Adamic race who live wicked lives will cease to exist or be destroyed in the figurative lake of fire. Rather, the end of a man can refer to his destiny in other ways. In Wisdom chapter 4, for example, and we won't see this passage in our commentary until the next segment, I believe. But in Wisdom chapter 4, Solomon wrote of the wicked as being a reproach among the dead forevermore, and then described them as being called to account for their sins. This evokes a passage in Daniel chapter 12, which we have also already cited, where the prophet describes a resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt, which shall apparently be suffered by certain wicked men. In any event, reproach forevermore and everlasting contempt indicate an eternal existence, even if it is a miserable existence when compared to what has been promised to the righteous. As we have seen, the Adamic spirit was created in the image of the eternity of Yahweh God, and God cannot fail. So after describing the righteous, who only appear to die, but who are in the hand of God after they pass from this world, the wisdom of Solomon once again turns its attention to the wicked and describes some of the inevitable results of their wickedness. But the ungodly, which are really simply the impious, the ungodly, shall be punished according to their own imaginations, which have neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. That was verse 10. We are beginning with verse 10 of chapter 3 of the Wisdom of Solomon. Even the angels that sinned were at one time with Yahweh, as it is described in Revelation chapter 12. So they and their children can in that way be described as having forsaken the Lord. Jude uses anachronisms to describe their sin, where he said in his epistle, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. We will mention the error of Balaam several times this evening and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. While in Numbers chapter 16, Korah sought to challenge the order 
of the kingdom arranged by Yahweh. It is evident that Cain was a bastard that killed his brother Abel because his sacrifice was rejected, challenging that same order, that same order of God, which had approved of the sacrifice of Abel. But it was Balaam who had encouraged Balak, the king of Moab, to overcome the children of Israel by seducing them to take his women, which is revealed in chapter 2 of the revelation of Yahshua Christ, leaving them to commit fornication. In the book of Numbers, we see Balaam and we see Balak, but we don't really see what Balaam had said to Balak before the daughters of Moab began to seduce the children of Israel sexually. So in Revelation chapter 2, in the revelation of Yahshua Christ, it is first revealed to us exactly what Balaam did counsel Balak in regard to that. And we see that it was to entice his servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols, which is basically to worship the pagan gods. Therefore, by Jude's use of these anachronisms in reference to the much earlier rebellion of the angels that sinned, we can understand the nature of their sin, that they corrupted the creation of God as their children do to this very day. Here, the wicked are described as having neglected the righteous. So it is apparent that the wicked men which Solomon is describing are men of his own race who have turned their backs on their own kind. This is in keeping with his declaration at the end of chapter 2 of Wisdom, that nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. As we proceed with this chapter, we shall better see how the wicked find such death. Yet neglecting the righteous is also what the goat nations are accused as having done by Christ himself in his parable of the sheep and the goats, which was recorded in Matthew chapter 25, giving his reason why it is that all of the goats are destined for the lake of fire, the same lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Christ said, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he also say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels." These are entire nations, and they are not merely individuals among nations to whom Christ had referred. Because the goats have no care for the, king, for the children of God, because the goats have no care for the people of God, they earn their destiny in the lake of fire. It is not that they were ever worthy of the kingdom of heaven, because they are goats and not sheep. But rather, 
Their fruits are a result of their own intrinsic character. And Christ himself had told us frequently in his gospel that men both wicked and righteous would be known by their fruits. So we see here in the wisdom of Solomon, for whoso despises wisdom and nurture, he is miserable and their hope is vain. Their labors unfruitful or literally useless and their works unprofitable or literally worthless. Their wives are foolish and their children wicked. Their offspring is cursed. Now these men didn't start out cursed. They started out impious. And their offspring ended out ended up cursed. How does that happen? The word which is translated as offspring is genesis. It doesn't really mean offspring. Genesis can only refer to their origin and not to their progeny. Genesis, Genesis, the book of origins. Therefore, we must conjecture the thought that where the wives of the ungodly are said to be foolish, it is because their choice of wives is foolish. In Proverbs chapter 9, the woman who is an adulteress is considered foolish, as well as the man who entertains her. So the ungodly man making a foolish choice when finding a wife, the children are wicked because their origin is cursed. That's what the word Genesis means, the beginning or origin of someone or something. This we also find in the words of Christ as they are recorded in Matthew chapter 12. We're speaking of the unforgivable sin, which we esteem to be race-mixing fornication. He said, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Likewise, comparing men to trees, in Matthew chapter 7, he said, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. In our commentary on the earlier portion of this chapter, we have already explained that seeing one's children being given over to those of other races is a punishment for sin. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. And there shall no might be in thine hand you won't be able to do a damn thing about it. So Solomon is warning of this same thing here in wisdom, that when a man turns his back on the righteous, this process of punishment is invoked. The only way that a man can make good the tree is to marry a woman of his own race. Otherwise, one's offspring are cursed. 
and they are cursed because their origin is cursed. And thus we see here in Wisdom chapter 3, in the rest of verse 13, because I stopped midway. Actually, I didn't stop midway if you see the text of the Septuagint, which would include that part of verse 13 in with verse 12, where it belongs. So, for the rest of verse 13, Wherefore, blessed is the barren that is undefiled, which has not known the sinful bed. She shall have fruit in the visitation of souls. And the subject doesn't change because the verse number changes. If a man chooses foolish wives, and because of that, the children are wicked, and the children are wicked because their origin, their genesis, not offspring, their origin is cursed. And here we have a reference that it's better for a woman to be barren who has not known a sinful bed than we see what Solomon is talking about. He's talking about children born to race mixers. Where it says visitation of souls or lives, it seems to be a reference to the judgment of the works of men. The phrase, which has not known the sinful bed, is more literally, who has not known a bed in transgression. The word koite, in that sense, referring to the marriage bed, as it was also used in Greek literature. Paul of Tarsus used the same word in Hebrews chapter 13, where he said, marriage is valuable in every way. Likewise, the undefiled bed, Yahweh will judge fornicators and adulterers. So Paul, Paul was teaching what Solomon had said in Wisdom, which is much more, in language, much more obscure in the rest of the Old Testament. Making this analogy, Solomon further elucidates what he had meant in the preceding verses, that the ungodly man who turns his back on the righteous will ultimately follow the way of the devil and find death by marrying outside of his own race. And Paul of Tarsus was also referring to that same thing, relating a defiled bed to fornicators as well as adulterers. He was referring to race mixers as well as the unfaithful in marriage. Blessed is the barren who is undefiled. Blessed is the barren. In the Old Testament, it was a disgrace for a woman to go to old age childless, of which we see an example in the wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson in Judges chapter 13. And again in Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. Another example is in the quest of Tamar to assure herself a son from Judah, as she was faithful and belonged to his house. But here Solomon explains that it is better for a woman to be barren and to remain childless than rather than to enter into a sinful relationship, which would be either adultery or fornication. So for her chastity, she shall be much more greatly rewarded. 
And now he says the same thing of men in different language. And blessed is the eunuch, which with his, with his hands had wrought no iniquity, nor imagined wicked things, wicked things against God. For unto him shall be given the special gift of faith and an inheritance in the temple of the Lord more acceptable to his mind. Blessed is the eunuch. Like the barren woman, the label eunuch is also a metaphor here, where it describes a man who should have no children rather than marry an alien unlawfully. And in that sense, he would be no better than a eunuch. Yet for his chastity shall he be rewarded. Once again, Yahshua Christ himself used that same analogy where he said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, for there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So it is better to be childless than to be a father of bastards, and for that to be without reward in the kingdom of God. Solomon now declares of the woman who remained childless, and of the man who would be as a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For glorious is the fruit of good labors, and the root of wisdom shall never fall away. The word for wisdom here, phronesis, is better translated as understanding. The root of understanding is the law, since Solomon refers to wisdom as coming from God, and therefore the fruit of good labors in this context is to have children lawfully through legitimate marriage or to remain chaste and not have children at all. That is made fully evident in the next verse where it explains the condemnation of the children of adulterers. So, as we had cited from the words of Christ, to make the tree good is to marry within one's own race, and thereby one shall bear good fruit as good works are done within the law. Adam himself had declared what the lawful marriage was, where he could find no suitable wife among the beasts. So when Yahweh created a wife for him, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 2, he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. However, in spite of Adam's declaration, Eve was seduced into an unlawful union. So in keeping with this, Solomon now declares, As for the children of adulterers, they shall not come to their perfection, and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. Eve was seduced into an unlawful union because sin came into the world through envy of the devil 
not envy of a piece of fruit. As for the children of adulterers, they shall not come to their perfection, and the seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. Where it says they shall not come to their perfection. The phrase, atelesta estahi, may better have been rendered or translated. It shall be that they are without purpose. As bastards ultimately have no place in the congregation of Yahweh. This is why Cain could do no good. This is why his sacrifice was rejected. This is why when Yahweh God challenged him to do good, Yahweh told him that if he failed, it was because sin lieth at the door. This is why Cain, when he was so challenged, failed immediately and went and killed his brother. He was the child of an adulteress. He could not come to perfection. The word adultery, he could not amount to anything because sin lieth at the door. The word adultery here, the children of adulterers, the word adultery and its variants can describe those who confuse the bloodline through sexual relations with the husbands or wives of their neighbors, but it can also refer to race mixing. Here the word for adultery is moikos, a noun, and that word and the corresponding verb moikuo are used throughout the New Testament to describe the act of adultery. They are related to the word, to a word which means to mix, which is mignumi, which is also a verb. In his History of Animals, in Book 10, the Greek philosopher Aristotle used both verbs, mignumi and moikuo, to say that other kinds are mixed and crossed with each other. So moikuo means crossed in the sense of race mixing. Aristotle was writing in reference to birds, but the same principle holds for people. And we see that moikuo, to commit adultery, does indeed also mean to adulterate the blood by race mixing. The Greek historian and geographer Strabo of Cappadocia, who lived much closer to the time of Christ, in fact, Strabo probably died around 25 AD, when Christ still hadn't quite started his ministry. Strabo of Cappadocia also used the word moikos to describe race mixers twice in Book 16 of his geography where he stated that among certain tribes, the penalty for a moikos, an adulterer, is death, but among them only the person of the other race. So we see that the adulterer is an adulterer because he's in, in a union with somebody of another race. Only the person of the other race is considered to be the adulterer. So while we have an assurance that all of the bastards shall indeed be rooted out, Sometimes it seems as though that will never happen. And we read in verse 17 of Wisdom, chapter 3. For though they live long, yet they shall be nothing regarded, and their last age shall be without honor. 
and we would translate the last phrase to read or the last clause to read and without honor at the ends of their old age, which is a lot more accurate. The wicked may appear to live long and prosper, but in the end, it is all for naught. It is a struggle for the righteous to see the wicked live long and prosper. But we have an assurance that they will not succeed in their wickedness and that they will see the punishment which they are due. Job had struggled with this phenomenon. Where we read in Job chapter 21, and these are the words of Job, words attributed to Job. I wouldn't cite the words of the friends of Job as scripture, but the words of Job and even where he's corrected. And of course, the words of Yahweh in the book of Job are all legitimate. We read in Job chapter 21 in the words of Job, Wherefore do the wicked live? Why do the wicked live? Become old, yeah, are mighty in power. Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. And that certainly describes the Jews and all of the enemies of Christ today. But then as Job continues later in that chapter, Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. And of course he's still talking about the wicked. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the candle of the wicked put out? And how often comes their destruction upon them? God distributes sorrows in his anger. They are as stubble before the wind and as chaff that the storm carried away. God layeth up his iniquity the iniquity of the wicked, for his children, the children of the wicked. He rewards him, and he shall know it. His eyes shall see his destruction, and he shall drink the wrath of the Almighty. We also read of the same phenomenon, that the wicked seem to prosper in the eyes of the righteous, in Jeremiah chapter 5. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait, as he did set snares, they set a trap. They catch men. Sounds like lawyers. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. They are waxen fat. They shine. Yeah, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper, and the right of the needy do they not judge. Shall I not visit for these things, saith Yahweh? Shall my soul not be avenged on such a nation as this? And then again in Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous thou art, O Yahweh, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments, because <laughs> Jeremiah can't understand them. Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are they all happy? that deal very treacherously. Yet we have a promise that ultimately Yahweh shall destroy them all. 
However, not all of the wicked have such good fortune in this life. So Solomon says, or if they die quickly, they have no hope, neither comfort in the day of trial. And that word for trial is not the usual word. It's diagnosis, which may better have been rendered decision. Yes, it's the diagnosis is the same word from which we get our English word diagnosis. We just copied it from the Greeks. It may better have been rendered decision, where Solomon suggests that upon the death of the wicked, Yahweh God dispenses his judgment against them. Or perhaps he is telling us that the death of the wicked is their judgment, especially if they are bastards, because beyond this world, they have no place where they could go. So whether they live long or die young, the result is the same in the end. And we see in verse 19, for horrible is the end of the unrighteous generation. The word for generation is genea, and properly it means race. In the context here of men born in adultery, it certainly means race, especially where Solomon had also spoken in reference to their genesis, which is their origin. The word for horrible here is kalepas, which is hard or difficult. And the word for end is a plural form of telos, which can also mean conclusion, outcome, or even termination. Perhaps we would translate this passage to say, for hard is the termination of the unrighteous race. It will be difficult for them, but not for Yahweh our God. Now we shall proceed with chapter 4 of the Wisdom of Solomon, as the subject does not yet change. And as Solomon repeats something, he has already said of the barren woman and the eunuch. So the verses which follow are a form of parallelism, repeating the concepts of the verses which we have just presented. And he opens Wisdom chapter 4 by saying, Better it is to have no children and to have virtue, for the memorial thereof is immortal, because it is known with God and with men. As we shall see in verse 3 of this chapter, the virtue in having no children is contrasted to multiplying the brood of the ungodly and having bastard slips. So virtue is keeping the law and refraining from marriage if a suitable husband or wife cannot be found. For that, men and women are rewarded. So speaking of virtue, Solomon continues in verse 2. When it is present, men take example at it, and when it is gone, they desire it. It wears a crown and triumphs forever, having gotten the victory, striving for undefiled rewards. And this reference to the crown of virtue is an allegory for the reward of the righteous described as a crown of victory. And the language might be perceived as a Hellenism, because if it's a Hellenism, it can be claimed that the wisdom of Solomon was written 
in, in the third to first centuries BC, long after Solomon. So the language might be perceived as a Hellenism, as Paul of Tarsus also used the same figure where he wrote of the reward for Christian virtue in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and said, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I had preached to others, I myself should be a castaway, a failure. The meaning of verse 2 is even closer to the meaning of Paul's allegory as we may translate it, as it refers to virtue, and I'm basically retranslating verse 2 with my own reading of the Greek, being present. They imitate it, men imitate virtue, being present, they imitate it and desire it when it is gone. And forever wearing a crown, prevailing, it leads the contest of the undefiled in the struggle. Paul and Solomon speaking of the same contest, the struggle which we all have with sin and with the course of our daily lives. But this figurative use of the word crown is not a Hellenism, as the concept is older than any of the Greek classical writers, since it also appears elsewhere in the writings of Solomon, in Proverbs chapter 14, where he said, the crown of the wise is their riches, and he was not speaking of earthly riches, certainly not, but the foolishness of fools is folly. As for the virtue of raising faithful children, he wrote in Proverbs chapter 17 that children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. So we see that word crown was used allegorically, metaphorically, in Proverbs on several occasions. Now here in Wisdom, he writes in contrast to virtue. So we see what virtue it is he's speaking of. And he says, But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, which means shall not be useful, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. The relationship of race racial origins, and bastards to the ungodly who had turned their backs on the righteous cannot be overlooked. The meanings of the references to the sinful bed in relation to the preference of chastity over race mixing is plain. The consequences of multiplying the brood of the ungodly by planting bastard slips which are children of mixed race, are clearly elucidated. These things are expressed throughout the Old Testament and even in the law. 
but often they are explained in the poetic language of prophecy, which is easy to misinterpret, especially if the misinterpretations are purposeful. These things are also explained in the revelation of Yahshua Christ and in the letters of Paul, Peter, and Jude. Yet down through the ages, church philosophers have avoided the true and plain meanings of the words of Scripture. But here, those true meanings are expressed in terms which cannot be ignored or glossed over by the church philosophers. The Neoplatonists and Gnostics in the church cannot get away with their ridiculous claims about spiritual sperm here in the wisdom of Solomon. So now, it may truly be evident as to why the wisdom of Solomon was embraced by Christian church elders of the first century, but it was rejected by the time that the universal church began to form in the fourth century, as we had explained in the opening portions of this commentary. It should also be clear just why it has always been rejected and even despised by the Jews, where Solomon references the multiplying brood of the ungodly. The Greek word translated as multiplying brood is polygonous, an adjective which means producing many at birth or prolific. Literally, it is a compound word meaning many born. The word polis meaning many, as we have borrowed the prefix poly into English, and ganos meaning that which is begotten, a child or offspring. So while any man may act impiously, the ungodly to whom Solomon refers here are born that way. Therefore, he also describes them as bastard slips. In Isaiah chapter 17, a punishment is pronounced upon the children, the ancient children of Israel. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant plant pleasant plants, and shall set it with strange slips. Because they forsook their God, they would have children whom Yahweh would not recognize. But later, in Jeremiah chapter 2 of the sins of Israel, we read, For of old time I have broken my yoke and burst thy bands, and thou said, I will not transgress, meaning that the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and agreed to be obedient to God at the exodus at Mount Sinai. But they didn't remain obedient, because it goes on to say, When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me, 
turning to the worship of Baal, the children of Israel had been race mixing with the Canaanites. And that truth becomes evident as Jeremiah proceeds. And he says in the very next verse, For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. How can you say, I am not polluted, I have not gone after Baalim? Washed must be the unforgivable sin, which is fornication in race mixing. So Jeremiah had lamented in that same chapter, For my people have committed two evils. They have destroyed me, the fountain of, I'm sorry, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jude called the angels that left their first estate clouds without water because they didn't have the Spirit of God in them. They were bastards. They bastardized themselves. They race-mixed. That's how they fell from heaven. They were, or they became, broken cisterns. Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, illustrates this sin more clearly, where in chapter 16 of his prophecy, it speaks of Jerusalem, and he wrote, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. So with Ezekiel, we may also understand the nature of the sin described in Jeremiah. The reasons for the deportations of Israel and Judah was to separate them from the bastard slips which they had planted, as it is in Amos chapter 9. Behold, the eyes of Yahweh God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith Yahweh. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, The evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Where in verse 7 of that same chapter of Amos, the children of Israel were compared to the Ethiopians, whom Yahweh had given up to his enemies on their behalf. The message of Amos is unmistakable. Yahweh would punish Israel so that they would not become bastards, as the Ethiopians had become overrun and mixed with Nubians. In Jeremiah chapter 13 we read, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to doing evil. This is a call to Israel to cease from sin, lest they end up as the Ethiopians. The passage between the passage being a Hebrew parallelism. The skin of the Ethiopians of Jeremiah's time was already as the coat of a leopard, part white and part black. 
and the mongrel Ethiopian could not change his predicament. What happened to Ethiopia, and also to Egypt, was prophesied much earlier, in Isaiah chapter 43. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Yahweh gave Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba as a ransom for Israel. Who did Yahweh give them to? This process had already begun when Isaiah had written those words and was well on, to, on its way to completion when Jeremiah recorded what had been given to him. Yahweh gave up Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sheba by allowing those nations to be overrun by Negroes. So we see that happening now in America and Europe. And we should understand it as a punishment for sin. Yet Yahweh will not allow Jacob to be destroyed completely. And one day, hopefully soon, he shall visit the wicked. A nation built on bastards shall not endure, as Solomon had said here. The multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. A nation built on bastards shall not endure. So Solomon wrote further, For though they flourish in branches for a time, Yet standing not last, they shall be shaken with the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. Where it says, yet standing not last, we would understand the Greek to read, standing unsafely, where they would be shaken easily by the winds. Once again, Yahshua Christ was referring to races of men, and said, he said in reference to his enemies, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 6. For a good tree brings not forth corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And why do you call me good? I'm sorry, and why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me, heareth my sayings, and does them. I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house, and dig deep, and laid the foundation on a rock, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that hears and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream or the river did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. As for the bastard slips, Christ had spoken in Matthew chapter 15 and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. In John chapter 15, he spoke to his disciples and said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. 
for without me you could do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them up and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. But abiding in Christ is to keep his commandments. As he revealed later in that same chapter, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. One of those commandments is not to commit adultery, as we have explained, which, as we have explained, also includes race mixing. If one of the Ten Commandments, which we are given, demands that we do not covet our neighbor's wife, and the commandment not to commit adultery means something other than that, but in the New Testament, that sort of adultery was usually described as fornication. The commandment not to commit adultery does not say the same thing than the commandment not to covet one's neighbor's wife. They must mean two different things. They must have two different meanings. There are only ten commandments. In the New Testament, that sort of adultery was usually described as fornication. Jude explained in his epistle that fornication is the pursuit of strange flesh. And Paul used the word to describe the race mixing which occurred with the daughters of Moab after the Exodus, warning the Corinthians not to commit such fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The churches and their Gnostic and Neoplatonic philosophers have redefined fornication for themselves in spite of its clear meaning in these scriptures. But the language in the wisdom of Solomon so coherently corresponds to so many things said by Paul of Tarsus and so many similar things said by Yahshua Christ that we could clearly see that all three of these sources are teaching the same doctrines in respect to race mixing, in respect to race mixing, fornication, and adultery. So the warning of Solomon shall stand, as we just heard from Christ himself. And Solomon says in verse 5, But the imperfect branches shall be broken off, their fruit unprofitable, not ripe to eat, yeah, meat or fitting for nothing. And that word for imperfect is atelestus, which is more literally without end or without issue or for no purpose or without effect. And that also describes the fate of bastards, the goat nations, and the angels that sinned, which according to Jude are trees whose fruit withers, without fruit, and twice dead. Their lives have no issue at the end, as they cannot see the kingdom of heaven, not having the spirit with which the Adamic man had been endowed that image of Yahweh's eternity. Here we also see 
allusions to men and their offspring as trees and fruit, which is common in the gospel of Christ and also appears often in the Old Testament. So in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he describes the enemies of ancient Israel, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom, of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. In other words, they were serpents. If a man keeps not the commandments of Christ, which are found in the Old Testament laws of Yahweh, then he is broken off. He is a branch broken off and burned in the fire meaning that all of his bastard offspring shall be forever destroyed. Christ himself explained this in different ways in Revelation chapter 2. First, in a warning to the church at Pergamos, where, like Paul in 1 Corinthians, he also alludes to the events of Numbers chapter 24. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. We know what that means because when we look back to Numbers chapter 24, the children of Israel are joining themselves, not just to the tables of Moab, but to the daughters of Moab. So we know exactly what Yahshua Christ means here by committing fornication. Then, in that same chapter of the Revelation, Christ makes the same warning to the church at Thuatira, but in a different way, speaking about the idolatry of bow worship which Jezebel had favored. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. The church philosophers concentrate on eating things sacrificed unto idols and they try to claim that fornication meant something other than what it plainly means, which is the pursuit of strange flesh, which is to race mix, which is for the Israelites to join themselves to the daughters of Moab. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. As he proceeds, he announces her punishment and the punishment of those who follow her. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, because that word for adultery can also be used to describe race mixing, the two different words being used to describe the same sin, it, it's fortifying the surety of the definition. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. The children of these adulterers are going to be destroyed. And all the churches shall know that I am he 
who searches the hearts and the reins. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So ultimately, all of the bastards shall be destroyed. And all of the assemblies of God shall understand what had happened when they are destroyed. All the churches shall know. Now Solomon warns even further in verse 6. And this again informs us as to exactly what he's talking about all through these last dozen or so verses. I think we presented maybe a few more than a dozen here. For children begotten of unlawful beds are witnesses of wickedness against their parents in their trial. And actually, that's a word for examination or scrutiny or review. The scrutiny of God. Christ being he who searches the hearts and the reins. The fact that one gave birth to to bastards or had sired bastards is itself a witness against his impiety and his sin or hers. There is no escaping it. Esau had engaged in that same sin. So Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness was an idiom in ancient Hebrew for rebellion, the two concepts being described in the same word, mara. <laughs> lest there be, now here Paul is going to explain what that root of bitterness or rebellion is, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. He didn't seek repentance carefully with tears. He sought the blessing carefully with tears. But he never really repented. The proof that he never really repented is in the chapter following when he had lost the blessing to his brother Jacob. And Esau saw, and I'm paraphrasing, Esau saw that his wives had displeased his father. So instead of asking his father, Dad, you tell me who I should marry, because he already had these Hittite wives, he went out and found another wife, and it was an Ishmaelite. So he still couldn't do it right. He still didn't get it right. So he couldn't have the blessing, even though he sought the blessing carefully with tears. He never sought repentance. So Esau actually despised his birthright because he was a fornicator, and his mother made sure that he didn't get it, grieving that her heart was troubled because Esau had married women of the Hittites. If one has no care for his birthright and rebels against God, the brood of bastards which he raises shall stand as a witness in the last days, just as all throughout the time, all through time, the Edomites in their actions have served, have served 
as a testimony against the deeds of Esau. In the Judea of Paul's time, many of the Judeans had been already intermarrying with the converted Edomites for nearly 200 years. So Paul warned in that same chapter of Hebrews, for which reason he then mentioned Esau, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons, for what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. But Paul had prayed they repent, as he explained in Romans chapter 9 and the subsequent chapters of that epistle, where he continued to allude to them. In another writing by Solomon, we read in the 127th Psalm, which is credited to Solomon, except Yahweh build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except Yahweh keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of Yahweh, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. That last verse infers that the children of the righteous man shall turn away their enemies by their righteousness. But if a house is not built according to the laws of Yahweh, then he cannot be credited with having built it. And as Solomon said here, the imperfect branches shall be broken off. Just as Paul used that same analogy in Romans chapter 12 to describe those Israelites in Judea who had joined the priests in their rejection of Christ. They turned their backs on the righteous one, and for that they were destroyed, or they became race mixed with the Edomite Jews, so that their offspring are bastards. That is the end of the wicked. When we return to the wisdom of Solomon, he once again turns to discuss the righteous. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.